It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out how plankton populations have changed around the planet, taking a look at the future of European science, and hearing about what is perhaps the oldest fossil fungus ever discovered. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. If we want to fully understand the ongoing environmental impacts of climate change, one important thing to look at is how ecosystems have changed over time. The ocean is the Earth's largest ecosystem, and it's also one that keeps its own record of the past. Within the marine environment, there floats a community of very small, very informative zooplankton. They're called foraminifera. These single-celled drifters can be found remarkably preserved in ocean floor sediments, providing a microscopic record of their historical communities. Lucas Junkers from MARAM, the Centre for Marine Environmental Sciences at the University of Bremen in Germany, drew on mountains of data on these animals from both before and after the Industrial Revolution. Reporter Jeff Marsh called him up and asked why it's useful to know what the marine ecosystem was like before the Industrial Revolution. At the moment, we observe changes in marine ecosystems and we see that they are in a direction that is consistent with global change. But we have no clue what these ecosystems looked like before human influence. And so that makes it really difficult to say that the changes that we're seeing now are due to global change. Because presumably we've got lots of nice marine ecosystem data over the last sort of hundred years. Whereas even less, I think, is maybe since World War II. We need longer time series. So the way that you're probing these historical marine ecosystems is using these zooplankton, the foraminifera. Tell us why you use those and why do they make a, a useful organism? These little plankton, they form a calcite or carbonate shell that is very well preserved in the sediment. We can look in the sediment and see exactly what their species community looked like at the time when the sediment was deposited. 
listeners should probably just go on their computers or smartphones and, and just Google them because they're really beautiful, aren't they? But they're microscopic almost. They are. What do they look like? Well, if you're disrespectful, you say they look like little popcorn, but they can be very beautiful. I think it's magic. They're unicellular organisms. They're very, very simple, but their skeletons are very beautiful. They're globular chambers, and when they're alive, they have spines that extend double their body size sometimes, and this is what they use to catch food. They've got intricate shapes and then <laughs> beautiful colors. At least the living ones, the dead ones all look white. So you're looking at the foraminifera living in the ocean at the moment, seeing which species are there. And then by looking at the old sediment that may have floated down 170 years ago, you're comparing those two communities to see how the ecosystems have shifted post-industrialization. Exactly. You're doing this at a global scale, right? That sounds like a massive job. It is a massive job, but I didn't do that work. The data compiled has been collected by generations of scientists over decades. So it's really a lot of work. But I didn't do it. <laughs> I just put data together. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, Lucas. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm indebted to other people. Well, good on you for jumping in at the end <laughs> and <laughs> writing a nature paper. Um, so when you compared these old communities to the current communities of these zooplankton, what sort of shifts came up in the data? The first thing that we tried to do is to compare the modern communities with what's directly on the seafloor below. And we saw that they are different. We saw that that difference is bigger in locations where the climate has been warming more. So then we thought oh, there might be a link with global change. And then we looked at where in the sediment, where on the seafloor do we find species communities that are most similar to what we find in the water. And then we found that in almost all cases, these are the most similar sediment species community, so the pre-industrial community, within a warmer area. So this means that the modern communities represent a warmer species community than you find below them. I mean, the ocean hasn't just homogeneously heated up across industrialization, has it? Some parts of the ocean have got colder. In those situations, we also saw that the planktonic foraminifera changed in a direction towards colder temperatures. Can we be sure that temperature is what's affecting these communities? Because, you know, by definition almost, plankton are these free-floating organisms that are kind of at the will of all sorts of variables and currents and whatnot. How confident are you that it is to do with temperature? I am very, very confident about that. Previous studies have already demonstrated that the distribution of these foraminifera is primarily controlled by temperature, certainly on a ocean scale. And this is also the way we can use fossil species assemblages to reconstruct temperature back in the past. Is this compositional shift benign? Because I, I understand that all sorts of plankton form the basis of the marine food chain. Does it worry you? Yes, it worries me that we're changing not only the physical state of the ocean, but also the biological state of the ocean. But it's very difficult at the moment to predict what those consequences exactly are. But we're definitely changing ecological interaction networks and things in the, in the food chain. And this puts all the studies that are, have a shorter time span into a longer term perspective. And so we now are sure that the ecosystems are different. And I, I expect that they will keep on changing into states that we haven't seen before. That was Lucas Junkers from Marham at the University of Bremen chatting to Jeff Marsh.
The European elections begin tomorrow, giving EU citizens over the age of 18 the chance to vote on who will represent them in the European Parliament. This week, Nature is publishing a series of features, comment articles and an editorial looking at science in Europe. Nature's Richard Van Norden has been overseeing the features and he joined me in the studio, where we started by chatting about how Europe is quite a different place since the last EU elections back in 2014 and about how this might be affecting science. So science has really benefited from the growing integration of the European Union over the last few decades. So there's a sense that any threats to a united Europe are threats also to scientific research. We have the parliamentary elections this week and anti-EU populist parties are expected to gain more of a foothold in the parliament. doesn't necessarily mean that they will um, be able to do much to change the EU's direction, but we'll see. So we decided to write about where EU science is going in the next decade or so. Probably the main thing that everyone wants to know about is where is the next tranche of money going and what's it going to be spent on? Because the European Union devotes an amazing amount of its budget to research and innovation. Well, a lot of this funding comes from Horizon 2020, which is this big overarching kind of funding scheme for projects all over the EU. Um, as its name suggests, well, its, its time is almost up. Here we are in 2019. What's due to be coming up then to replace it in 2021? Yeah, so although at time of speaking, we don't know what the parliament will look like, we do have a clue to what the next Horizon Europe, as it's called, spending program will look like. At the moment, it is going to be more money, 107 billion euros if you include a new European defence fund. There are some sort of key things that are still up for debate. One of the things that still has to be decided is whether this program will open itself up more to countries outside of the EU. At the moment, there are also geographically nearby countries that can take part. And there's some arguments about this because the countries that do best out of the current programme, well, some of them aren't actually in the EU, Switzerland, Israel. So to bring in even more countries could be quite divisive. So still lots to decide about what Horizon Europe ends up being and how much funding it will provide. But what lessons do you think have been learned from the outgoing Horizon 2020? One of the problems that the European Union has is that the countries that joined the EU recently, asked 2004, many of them former communist states, don't do as well out of Horizon 2020 as the rich Western countries like Germany and France. They pay in about 9% of Horizon 2020 and they get back about 5%. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. One is they should get more money and the other is that the Horizon Framework programs are based on excellence. And if you can't compete as effectively because your domestic governments are not interested in science then, you know, that's too bad um, and it's up to your governments to do better. Now, in Horizon Europe, the same arguments continue, but uh, the amount of money given to these EU13 expressly to help them compete for money and, and be more successful, that's tripled to 3 billion from 1 billion. And we'll see how that goes because this debate is not going to go away and countries like Romania, Poland, Bulgaria just feel that they ought to be getting more out of this research program than they are, and they worry about brain drain and their best researchers going off to Western Europe. 
Well, finally, Richard, on Horizon Europe, so far we've avoided the B word, which is, of course, Brexit. What effect has this had on the Horizon Europe budget? Yeah, well, basically, all these negotiations have been taking place assuming the UK isn't there. And if the UK pays in to take parts, which British scientists really hope is going to happen, that will be extra on top. I mean, British scientists, perhaps more than anyone, know how important the multinational programmes enabled by Horizon Europe will be, and they're all desperately hoping that they're still part of it. Well, you've mentioned it in passing, Richard, but let's let's investigate it a little bit more as well. One of the features is looking at an upcoming EU funding stream for defence-related research. What do we know about this one? Yeah, the EU is going to drastically increase its spending on military research. We don't know the final figure, but it looks like there's going to be a chunk of $13 billion. Perhaps $4 billion of that will be for the research that universities and so on might hope to take part in. The rest is procurement. And this is quite controversial. Well, if there is this kind of pushback, why is the EU sort of going ahead with this? The origins of this is political. Essentially, following increasing tensions on the EU's borders, Jean-Claude Juncker, the EU's commission leader, sees defence as an opportunity, a way for the EU to assert itself in the wake of Trump's election win, the Brexit vote. Now, some of this research funding has already been paid out as a pilot scheme, and we had a look at where that's gone. And interestingly, so far, university academics have not won very much. They've only won less than 2% of the 44 million euros allocated in the last two years. Most of it's gone to companies and organisations. And that's quite different from the Horizon 2020 programme we've been talking about, where higher education institutions win perhaps just under half the spending So for some reason, academics are not winning as much money and some researchers are unaware of it, but some are actually avoiding it. And this campaign group called Researchers for Peace that has gathered more than a thousand signatures against this fund, the largest shares come from Germany, where more than 60 universities have signed voluntary agreements not to carry out military R&D. Well, last one from me then, Richard. Of course, the elections haven't happened yet, nor have the negotiations for the final research budget. But in this Europe special, Nature has been looking sort of backwards and forwards at research in Europe. Where do we think it is right now? Yeah, so our editorial is pointing out that European science is is in a really strong position. Europe's share of the world's science and science spending is is dwindling because China's is expanding so fast, but it's still extremely highly cited, it's extremely influential, and its system of collaborative research projects is essentially unique in the world. No other block of countries collaborates to this extent. We're arguing that there should be more money for the European Research Council, a highly competitive basic science funding agency. But beyond that, we're saying don't forget the benefits of stable, multi-year funding, long-term planning, collaborative research, and hold fast to those strengths, essentially, against populism, nationalism, or any other forces that might be driving countries apart. That was Richard Van Norden, Features Editor here at Nature. To read all of the articles in the Europe special, head over to go.nature.com slash Europe, and that's all lowercase. Later in the show, we'll be hearing about new research looking at the neurological effects of homelessness. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. Ebola may have faded from the headlines, but it remains a serious public health threat. The current outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo has so far claimed over a thousand lives – with over 100 new infections reported every week. When someone's infected with Ebola, 
their immune system produces antibodies to fight the disease. New research has now charted how such antibodies respond to the infection and how they change over time. Researchers studied the immune response of four people who survived an Ebola infection during the 2014 outbreak in West Africa. The team discovered that one type of antibody surged just after infection, but over the subsequent months and years, the antibody response changed. Other protective antibody groups appeared over time, perhaps responding to pockets of the virus that were hiding out in the eyes or lymph nodes. Crucially, the disease itself didn't reappear. The research could be useful in determining whether new vaccines against Ebola are likely to work, by testing whether they trigger the same antibodies that survivors of the disease developed over time. You can find that research in Cell. Here at Nature, there's a constant battle over the office thermostat. It's always too hot or too cold for someone. So new work to develop a wearable air conditioning system naturally caught our eye. The scientists involved use thermoelectric materials as the basis of their system. These materials pump heat from one side of a device to another, creating a cool zone and a hot zone. By adding polymer sheets to their system, the team were able to create a patch that separated the hot and cool areas from each other, allowing the heat from the hot side to dissipate into the air. Thanks to the polymer and a flexible battery pack, the patch is stretchy enough to be embedded in items of clothing and can cool skin by 10 degrees Celsius. The scientists say the ultimate goal would be to combine multiple patches together to create smart clothing that provides personal heating and cooling. Try that research on for size at Science Advances. Next up, reporter Nick Howe has been trying to find out more about the origin of fungi. Fungi, or fungi, or even fungi if you're that way inclined, are a huge group of organisms that are probably most familiar as mushrooms or mould. They're involved in things like breaking down dead plants or animals, or, if you're like me, your uneaten bread from a week ago. This is all part of nutrient cycling, and some scientists believe that through processes like these, fungi may have been essential to making land suitable for the very first terrestrial plants and animals. Because of this, scientists are interested to find out how and when they evolved. The molecular evidence we have suggests that fungi may be around a billion years old. But currently, the oldest fossil evidence we have is only half that age, from 450 to 470 million years ago. But that may be all about to change. As this week in Nature, Emmanuel Javot and her team present a fossil fungus that may be older than those previously found. Much older. In this new paper, we have found abundant microfossils that are new. These fossils, they come from rocks that are dated between 1 billion and 900 million years ago. So this means that fungi are older than we thought. And the new thing about this paper is that we have found older evidence of fungi. They are now 500 million years older than the earliest reported fossils. The new fossil species is a multicellular organism called Urasphora geraldae. 
Its fossil was dug out of an area called the Brock Inlier in northwestern Canada. Emmanuelle and her team believe it's the oldest fungal fossil to date. But with a 500 million year jump in the fossil record and 1 billion years between us and it, could it not be something else? Like algae, for instance? How certain is it that it's a fungus? We are very sure that they are fungi because we combine different lines of evidence. Emmanuel used three main lines of evidence to make the case that these are fungi. The first was how the fossils looked, the morphology. So these microfossils, they look like small spheres that we interpret as frontal spore. These spheres are attached to filaments, and these filaments have a T-shape, and they branch at right angles. This branching appearance is common in fungi, so Emmanuel believes this is a good indication that it's a fungus. The second line of evidence was the structure of the cell walls. So we cut this fossil in sections, and we look at them with electron microscopy. And this allows to show that the walls are made of two layers that have different texture and possibly different compositions. We have an external amorphous layer and an internal layer that's made of microfibrils, like in the walls of fungi. Fungal cell walls typically have two layers with differing structure. So that's another tick in the it's a fungus column. The third bit of evidence was the presence of chitin, a large molecule that's a component of fungal cell walls. So to analyse the composition of the organic wall of these fossils, we use a technique called infrared spectroscopy. So we can analyse one microfossil at a time and then we get spectra that are indicative of the composition of the organism and compare it with known biopolymers made by life. And the composition of this fossil is similar to the composition of chitin. So according to Emmanuel, this fossil looks like a fungus, it's got a cell wall like a fungus, and it has a similar composition to a fungus. Just one of these aspects would not be enough to declare Urasfera duralde definitively a fungus. But combined, Emmanuel believes it makes a strong case. However, Christine Strelieu-Derian, who studies fossil fungi but wasn't associated with this study, is not convinced. I cannot say for sure that it is a fungus with what they present. The main concern Christine has is with the detection of chitin. Chitin is known as being very highly biodegradable. And so, for me, it's a bit difficult to think that you can have a signal so close to the modern chitin. With this fossil being one billion years old and chitin being so readily degraded, Christine thinks it is unlikely there will be any chitin left to detect today. Without the detection of chitin, she thinks the remaining evidence is insufficient to conclude this is a fungus. More would need to be done to convince her. I think they should have done other chemical analysis because there are other chemical analyses that you can perform on this kind of preservation. So they could have tried other methods to compare if they get from the other method the same result. If this fossil is confirmed to be a fungus, it could change our understanding of the story of the evolution of fungi. 
For one thing, it would mean that multicellularity in fungi emerged way before currently thought. It could also change our understanding of early terrestrial life. This new fossil certainly doesn't have all the answers, but the question of the first fungi is one that Christine thinks is important to explore. It is important to know the origin, to know, to understand how they have been able to reach the land and in what way are the adaptation for the colonization of land. And they are so important in land today, you know. They are, they are associated with plants, with animals, with us. They have so many roles in nature today. So it's important to know the beginning of the story and we have a, a lot of gaps to fill. That was Christine Strelou-Dorian from the Natural History Museum in London. You also heard from Emmanuel Javot, who's at the University of Liège in Belgium. You can find Emmanuel's paper over at nature.com. Well, our show ends, as always, with the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Flora Graham, Nature's briefing editor. Flora, hi. Hi. For our first story today, we're going to head over to California, where researchers are about to start looking at some of the health effects of homelessness. That's right. A new study that's launching from the University of California, San Francisco, is specifically looking at neurological disorders and how they seem to happen more quickly in older homeless people. And uh, what sort of things are the researchers going to be looking for? The study is going to look for signs of debilitating brain conditions like dementia in the frontal and temporal lobes. And it's going to look at at least 20 homeless adults. And this ties into existing work, which looks at the fact that homeless people seem to age almost in hyperspeed. So conditions like strokes and falls and visual impairments, they seem to appear much younger in older adults who are homeless rather than in the general population. So I guess that homeless people face a number of factors that could contribute to neurological issues. And so this is the interplay that the researchers are looking at. What's the homeless situation like in San Francisco, where the researchers are based? Well, homelessness is on the rise in the United States in general. And the problem in California is particularly acute. In the San Francisco Bay Area, over 28,000 people are homeless. Well, so so some quite staggering numbers then. Uh, and as you say, this research has, has just started. But what are kind of the long-term goals then for the researchers? Of course, the goal is to help health outcomes improve for homeless people, specifically older homeless people, but also to ensure that the interventions are more efficient and hopefully save taxpayers some money. And what about those running the study? What are they saying? Well, it's interesting to note that Sergio Lanada, the neurologist leading the research, says that neurological issues might have contributed to putting people on the street in the first place. He says that some of the patients he looks at, if they didn't have strong family support, would have ended up homeless since no one could or would care for them. Well, let's move on to our second story, Flora, and we're revisiting the CRISPR embryo editing news that broke in November last year and centred on the Chinese researcher He Jingkui's very controversial work. What's the update on this one? Yes, it looks like China is going to be introducing new regulations to restrict gene editing in humans. And this seems to be in direct response to what happened with these CRISPR babies. And what are the specifics of these regulations? So this is the country's civil code, the overarching legal framework that governs non-criminal disputes like marriage, inheritance, personal rights. And a draft of the new civil code lists human genes and embryos in a section on personality rights to be protected. So experiments on genes in adults or embryos that endanger human life or violate ethical norms can be seen as the violation of a person's fundamental rights. 
as I remember, no one was really sure at the time whether her had actually broken any laws. Uh, I guess this makes things clearer. That was definitely an outstanding question. The outcry was huge. The controversy was worldwide. But the question remained, was it illegal what he actually did? Now, Zhang Peng, who's a criminal law scholar in China, says that now the law makes clear that those who do research with human genes and embryos cannot endanger human health or violate ethics. Finally on this one, I imagine these regulations are meant to put off any other researchers who might be considering repeating similar embryo editing in the future. Indeed, if someone is looking to do this research in China, they could be strongly dissuaded by these new regulations. They would be responsible for any negative consequences once those babies were born and grew up. Well, Flora, thank you for joining me today. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on these stories and head over to nature.com slash briefing to sign up for a daily dose of science. That's all for this week's show. If you've enjoyed it, please do spread the word. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.